0: hello golfers today's episode is brought to you by trackman golf today's episode is also powered by acra golf shafts proudly canadian acra golf shafts use only the highest quality materials to create the most innovative golf shaft designs for custom club fitting no shaft company is more dedicated to the professional club fitter than acra golf shafts go to www.acragolf.com to find a certified dealer near you and also today's episode is brought to you by super speed golf would you like to hit the ball 20 yards farther with the Superspeed Golf Training System, this can become a reality. Superspeed uses the scientifically proven methods of overspeed training to help increase how fast your body can move during your swing. This works with a set of three specifically weighted clubs used only three times per week, 10 minutes a session, following online training protocols. Join over 700 tour pros by getting your set at www.superspeedgolf.com. Use the code Skeen S-H-K-E-E-N, to receive 10% off your order. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the How's My Handpath podcast. I'm your host, Brandon Agarvani, and this week it's my honor to introduce our guest for the interview, James Duffy. James is a Canadian sports journalist and broadcaster working for TSN. Um, he mostly covers hockey, but he's covered many other sports, including the Canadian Olympics. Shine and James jump into a great conversation about his background in sports uh you know they talk about golf they talk about some of the important historical sporting events that james has witnessed uh and some great sports stories so hopefully you guys enjoy this interview as much as i did first of all you
1: grew up in canada i saw you were born in ottawa right if i'm not mistaken correct wow so you're as canadian as canadian can be
2: i am so my my dad was rcmp and so i was born in ottawa lived there for, I don't know, eight months, then was in Edmonton, then it was in Halifax, and then was in Victoria. My entire youth, like up to 10 years old, all I remember is like driving across the country in our station wagon because he kept getting transferred. And uh, But I was back in Ottawa by the time I was like 10 and spent uh, 20 years there before moving to BC and then getting hired by TSM
1: um so you basically saw more of canada in your first 10 years of life than i have now up until my
2: 30s <laughs> that would be accurate i drove across <laughs> canada seven times before i was nine i think
1: no way that's a that's impressive
2: yeah it's unbelievable and i still have these memories of like I pr- seeing bears uh that was my like my memory as a kid it, besides camping is seeing bears on the road and i know probably we saw you know i probably saw five or six bears but it felt like every day We were just driving past bears because that's, you know, when you're six years old or something and you see a bear in, in the Rocky mountains, I guess that image sticks with you. And so that's what I feel like my, my entire youth was, was driving along highways, looking at bears.
1: I mean, to be fair, you ask any city dweller, nobody has seen bears. I mean, I don't even recall ever seeing a bear. So I think that's pretty cool to be honest.
2: It was, uh, and I, it's so funny. I, that's the one thing I wanted to share, I have three kids. And when they were little, one of the first big trips we did was to do Western Canada because I wanted them to experience what I did. So we flew to Calgary and rented a big car and basically were driving to Vancouver. And I was so excited for them to see a bear. So they were, I think they were two, four and six years old at the time. And so I'm driving along the highway looking, looking for a bear. Haven't seen a bear for a couple of days. Then all of a sudden I, I see something I'm moving in the ditch this big black thing i get all excited i pull over to the side of the road and back up like 100 meters and i'm like kids it's a bear it's a bear and this was the one of the most horrifying things of my fatherhood i get to the bear and it's a dead bear being eaten by vultures and i have three little kids oh. peering, peering out the window at this horrific horror movie <laughs> oh my god like, daddy what's wrong with the bear <laughs> daddy and i'm like oh god I'm a horrible father
1: (laughs) that's uh yeah that's one way to terrify your kids into therapy really early (laughs) that's what I did Jesus uh did you end up ever seeing a bear eventually or no we did
2: we did we did you can't if you drive that uh I would recommend if you don't get out much and you're busy with your eight zillion clients but if you can (laughs) ever you know go to Banff and drive from Banff to Jasper to me is I've been, I've been lucky enough to go a lot of places in the world. That's the prettiest drive in the world. That, you know, 180 kilometers, there's waterfalls and uh, ice fields. And just, man, it's, uh, it's just, I, I sometimes I'm still shake my head that it's in Canada. And you're pretty good chance you'll see a bear somewhere along the way there.
1: I will say that Banff is one of the few places that I think everybody I know has been to, and I still haven't yet, despite all the photos I've seen. So it's, it's one of those places that's kind of close next up on my list to travel, especially now that we can't go anywhere.
2: You got to get there. I have a friend of mine who uh, made a a, a golf trip to Banff Springs for, I think this week and didn't really do the details. She just like booked the Banff uh, Fairmont. Yeah. She got out there and they closed the course on. October 1st.
1: No way. So So she's not even playing golf.
2: golf, She had up all her golf clubs and A, it was snowing and B, the golf course was closed. So that was like the worst planned golf trip ever. Wow.
1: Is this somebody who works in TSN?
2: It's just a friend of mine who uh, is not good at planning golf trips, clearly.
1: That's hilarious. Um, before we jump into TSN, I would love to know how you got started in media. Did you want to, did you like grow up wanting to be on TV or did that kind of just happen through an opportunity?
2: I don't think wanting to be on TV necessarily, but wanting to do something with sports and like a lot of us, I was a delusional athlete who I played high school football and I was a pretty good high school football player and uh, pretty good in small letters. And I literally, I literally believed I was going to play pro football. And I don't know why I was like nobody, some teacher or coach should have shook me in grade 11 and said, you're 5'10", barely, and that's only because I have a giant head. And uh, (laughs) 5'10", like 155, you have mediocre speed, and you play cornerback. I do not think the 49ers are going to draft you. <laughs> so, uh, but I believe that. So, that was my plan until about grade 12 when I guess I kind of woke up. And I remember walking into a guidance counselor's office. Now, I'm an old guy, so this is back in the day where computers were still young. And I just said, I want to do something with sports. And she basically typed it into her machine and out popped, uh, I believe, sports administration at, at Laurentian University and, uh, you know, phys ed at at a couple places to be a teacher and uh, journalism and broadcasting at at Carleton and Ryerson. So that's basically where I applied to go to school. And McGill, uh, in your fine city, was the only school that really recruited me for football. And uh, so I was going to go to McGill and play football and take phys ed. That's what I got into at McGill and be a gym teacher. And that was my life plan. And somewhere along the way, at the last second, I went down for a tour of McGill and they toured me around and everything, and I really liked it, but I think that I, I got cold feet on uh, being a gym teacher. As much as I value teachers more than anything in the world, I thought, ah, geez, I, I got to do more than, than being a gym teacher. And uh, um, hey, and then, like I said, I have a ton of respect for gym teachers, but just personally, I wanted to do more. And so at the last second, I bailed and I, I decided to take journalism at Carleton and thought if I could become a sportscaster and go to the games for free, that, that would be pretty much the ultimate job, and that's that's where I went that way.
1: Did any part of having to speak French when you come to Quebec deter you from coming?
2: No, parce que ma mère était une professeur de français et j'ai pris immersion. Wow, that's pretty. That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, you know what? If I if we started talking long term, I'd uh, I'd fail you miserably because I just haven't used it much. But uh, my mom was a French teacher, and I took immersion, so back then I was pretty much bilingual, and. Mm-hmm. I, I have slid just so much because I haven't used it. In fact, sometimes when we're doing our on, on TSN, we'll do those days like trade center or free agent frenzy and, you know, Bergevin, the GM of the Habs will have a news conference and I will try to translate when he speaks French. And uh, it's, you would have a good laugh if you heard me because I, I get <laughs> most of it, but sometimes I completely miss a few words or a sentence and probably take his comments completely out of context. But no, that wasn't really it. I think, uh, I probably, you know what, I was probably a bit of a wuss too, and so uh, I stayed home, my parents were in Ottawa, and uh, uh, I think maybe I was immature and wasn't ready to leave and go on my own, so a bunch of reasons made me stay, I think.
1: And so when did the opportunity with TSN come from? Did that come af- obviously after university, after you graduated from Carleton?
2: Uh, quite. I had to put in my pay my dues for a while. Uh, I, I, so I got a job in Ottawa as a TV reporter. Uh, I was a news reporter for seven years covering murders and fires and politics and all those things. And, uh, I, I liked it. I think it was a great experience for me, but I always had sports in the back of my mind. But back in those days when I started, There weren't a lot of jobs in sports. TSN was still in its infancy. It was the only sports network. And most TV stations had two guys who'd been there forever. And so there weren't many jobs. So I took the job in news and and finally got the opportunity to change over to sports, I think, when I was 28 or 29. And then uh, TSN came calling uh, uh, a short time after that. Somebody saw me, I guess, doing the sports in Ottawa and and, uh, was able to get what was kind of a dream job for me.
1: So I was going to, I was going to ask what your reaction was when TSN called. Cause at that point it probably wasn't the powerhouse that it
2: is now too, right? No, it wasn't. I, it was, it was getting there for sure. Um, it's, it, so I didn't want to bore you with the long story. I actually, I, I remember driving there for my audition and, uh, I'll never forget like the cab ride there was a rainy day and thinking this is it. Like, if you don't, if you screw this up, uh, I don't want to say stuck in Ottawa because Ottawa is a great town, but you'll probably be in Ottawa being a local guy the rest of your <laughs> life. And way,
1: way to put pressure on yourself.
2: <laughs> I, I totally did. But my audition went really well, but I actually didn't get the job. And it was right around that time that I'd got a job offer from a place in Vancouver. And so the guy who was running TSN, who uh, is actually Keith Pelly, who now runs the European golf tour. Yeah. Uh, so Keith was the one who called me and had seen me and asked me for an audition. And, And I I had to call him and say, hey, I have to give my answer on this job in Vancouver. And he said, look, we can't hire you right now, but I really want to hire you at some point. And I said, well, no problem. I'm moving to Vancouver. I want to spend a couple of years out in BC. So just don't call me in six months and offer me a job. And he called me in five months and offered me a job (laughs) to, uh, to host NBA and CFL at the time. That was my first job at TSN. So... Uh, and obviously, I couldn't, I couldn't turn it down as much as I really enjoyed living out in BC. But uh, like I said, it was kind of a dream come true. And my dad, my dad was a big CFL fan. He used to take me to Ottawa Rough Rider games growing up. And for me to host CFL, I think that was, uh, that was a really cool moment to call him and say, Dad, I'm going to be the host of uh, you know, Canadian Football League on TSN because that was always his favorite thing. So that was one of, one of my favorite uh, phone calls I ever had to make.
1: To be honest, I can relate to that to some degree because my father's favorite sport is golf and like, that's what he's always played, uh, ever since he came to Canada and that's kind of what, like what we started bonding over. Mm -hmm. So I think I can remember like when I first went to get my, I guess, pro cards or whatever, uh, for golf, he came with me on the trip and you had to see his face, it was kind of, I'm sure very similar to the reaction your father gave you of just like being super, super happy about it.
2: And then my dad passed away two and a half years ago, but uh, the year before he died, the Grey Cup was in Ottawa. And uh, I was hosting it from the sidelines and uh, he had tickets to the game, but I brought him down to the set with my mom. And, uh, you know, Henry Burris, who was a quarterback for Ottawa, who was working with me then was there. And I just, again, one of my one of my great memories. I I have a photo of it because I could just tell, you know, how how proud he was, how cool it was for him to uh, uh, to see that.
1: No kidding. So now you're killing it with the CFL and you're doing a really good job. So at what point do you start to transition
2: over to the hockey world? It's funny. If you'd, you sort of asked me at the beginning of this um, about my dream. And when, when I was in a teenager, I would football was always my favorite sport. Uh, I love hockey, you know, like most Canadians do, but football was always number one to me. And NFL, CFL, it didn't matter. I'd watch everything. And in fact, there was, I don't know if you remember, it's still on now, growing up in Quebec, but uh, there was a show called Les Zeros de Samedi, which uh, Saturday's Heroes, where they would play like little tight football games with seven-year-olds on TV with commentators. (laughs) I don't don't
1: remember that, but I'm going to look into that for sure.
2: Yeah, whatever the local station, whatever one of the local French stations in Montreal Mm -hmm. uh, would play like on Saturday mornings, They would they would bring a crew out and film games with these like six, seven year olds. And I would watch that. I love football so much. Uh, So I would turn down the television and do my own play by play like I think a lot of people do at some point in their lives for whatever sport. But I would do that for football all the time for all the NFL and CFL games. So after a, a couple of years at TSN, I started doing that for CFL, doing play by play. And I was just really starting to love it. And I don't know if I would have been great at it, like some guys are, but I, you know, I was getting decent at it. And that's when the hockey job came along. We got the rights to the NHL back in, I think, 2003. And they came to me and offered me the hosting job. And you just, you know, you can't say no to a national hosting job for hockey. And so uh, I didn't. I, I said yes. And my career sort of has tracked that way for uh, the last 20 years. But when, when we lost the rights to hockey a few years ago to Rogers so for the national rights, we still do a ton of hockey, as you know. Um, it actually ended up being kind of a, a neat break in my career because I never got into the, to the business to just be a hockey guy, as I said. So that allowed me to still do hockey, but now I get to cover the super bowl and the Grey Cup and the masters, uh, which is my favorite week of every single year. Uh, which we can get into uh, yeah for sure this year but so i actually love my job a lot more now getting to do all these different sports than i did when i was only doing hockey i love hockey i love doing the world juniors i love doing the nhl but it's really fun for me to be able to do all those other things
1: okay so before we get into golf i have a few questions about just to finish up on the hockey part First of all, how much of a shit show are the trade center days? Cause I would imagine that you're working probably super long hours, getting text messages nonstop when you guys do like all four of you or whoever, Bob McKenzie and everybody who's on talking about, uh, you know, trades are being done. First of all, how much of the information do you just have to kind of rely on the GM sending you the text? that mm-hmm. it's not like someone, you know, giving you a false claim of some sort? <laughs>
2: well, first of all, it is a shit show. Um, it, it really is every year. I, I used to dread it in my early years because i ah, worried about nothing happening for five or six hours, which would was so,
1: okay. Ha- so I want I wanted to ask that too, not to cut you off, but I had a follow-up question of like, can you recall any years where it was a total bust and like, it oh, was yeah. just, you guys were killing time on the air. Oh,
2: always. Well, you, almost always a trade center in particular. So we just did, you know, the free agent frenzy, which is there's two shows that are like that. The free agent's day, which is usually July 1st, which this year was in October and and trade center. Uh, the free agent one, usually there's lots that happens, right? Because a lot of guys sign right after it opens. So we're, we're usually quite busy. Mm -hmm. Um, trade center is different because we come on at eight in the morning and for the most part, you're not going to get a trade till 11, maybe noon. So I, we kind of know in advance that there's going to be four hours of death, Sometimes (laughs) uh, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes it ends up being seven hours of death. The last couple of years have actually been okay, but before that, we had two years that were just terrible. Where you were just I, I, I can tell you one story in particular. We we had one year, I'd have to look it up. The only trade that happened in the first like six hours was two minor league guys, Maxime Sove and Rob Flick, were traded for each other. Nobody had heard of either one of them. And we were so desperate. We had to interview them. And I, I think we had Rob Flick on the phone. No way! So it's like, hi everyone. uh, Let's uh, bring in Rob Flick traded this morning for Maxime Sauvé. And I think my first question was Rob, um, who the hell are you? (laughs) (laughs) So it, it, yeah, those times, but I've come to embrace it a little bit now because we have like 20 commentators in the room and I just sort of take it as this is just going to be a day to talk hockey all day. And I think I always wondered why I kept begging the bosses to shorten the showdown and say, why don't we come on at noon? This is stupid. And they kept showing me the ratings, which were always really good. And I thought, you know, why are people watching this? Is it like, you know, fly, is it like rubbernecking at an accident scene? (laughs) Because they watch just to see a a squirm at trying to fill the time. Eh, Maybe. And, but a, a lot of it is just the fact that Canadians love to just sit and talk about hockey. And so that's the one day a year that you get 20, pretty smart guys in the studio talking hockey. And so that's the way I look at it now, is uh, we, can, we can always fill the time, even if there are no trades.
1: I'll tell you what i have a, a group chat with obviously my close friends like many people do and when hockey comes up it is a consistent conversation and debates and pretty much like every other place in the world you would imagine everybody's complaining about oh this guy's making too much money this guy's not making enough no if i was this gm i would be doing this instead of that and i can only imagine what goes through some of your guys' minds too when people are signing these like huge contracts of going like ah, i don't know so much about that one well
2: definitely and i mean that's what makes uh, you know some of our our good commentators uh the ray ferraros of the world and jeff o'neill uh they they you know they're my job is not necessarily to criticize all those signings that's kind of their job and you were asking about the texts earlier i you know there are sometimes i break news i do have friends in the game uh who will send me things players but for the most part i leave that to the bob mckenzie's and darren Dragers of the world um and i do not envy their lives like they are permanently attached to those phones Bob's kind of semi-retired now but uh man they have to just constantly be in contact with every general manager and coach and agent to know what's going on that was not what I wanted to do I just that I don't want to be tied to it like that constantly um and so I let them do the hard work and I just ask the questions
1: do you notice a big cultural difference in hockey between cat? Like what are the biggest differences between Canada and the U S why hasn't the U S picked up hockey that much?
2: I think just hockey is very geographical in the U S where there's certain places you could go upstate New York, Pittsburgh, um, certain pockets where like Chicago. Yeah. The the hockey's still big because it, you know, climate somewhat fits in and, uh, Whatever the demographics are of the town. Um, but it's never been embedded in the culture like it, like Minnesota, of course, I should have, they're probably number one on the list. It's never been embedded like it has been in Canada. And there's cool things that happen. Like it's, it's really fun to go to a market like, say, Nashville, where look at hockey didn't exist 20 years ago and no one cared about it. But, uh, you know, the Predators came there and you go to Nashville now, it's one of the great. Game experiences there is in the league. I think Montreal is number one. I'm not saying that because you're there, but Montreal has got the greatest hockey atmosphere and the greatest hockey history of any city. Um, for sure. But, but uh, you know, for to catch on in a place like Nashville is is really really cool, and the growth there is happening. You know, there are kids playing hockey that never did before, but it's just not ingrained in our culture like the way it is in Canada, where you know, from the second you're born, a lot of the time. Um, now, you know, is Canada changing? Certainly the multiculturalism in our country, the, uh, the success of the Raptors and the way basketball has penetrated our culture, all these are great things. So maybe it's not quite the way it used to be. But I mean, hockey is still very much ingrained here more than it is. And, and I don't think you'll ever change that in, you know, Florida or Arizona or whatever. You might get uh, some sort of growth, but you're never going to get it the way it is in Canada. That's the way they are with, you know, football and, and baseball.
1: Yeah. Cause uh, the reason why I thought of this question was cause like you see a team like Tampa winning and then they go back to their hometown and it's like, how much are people actually caring that the lightning just won the Stanley cup? Like I can't imagine it's even 10, 15% of if the books, let's say won the super bowl.
2: Well, put it this way. There's always like the fan bases themselves are are, are intense, really, yeah, yeah, for sure. So, uh, two examples. Uh, I've I've covered every Cup final now for the last twenty years, and I can You know, when it's in Canada, it's insane, right? The entire city. You can't walk anywhere not knowing that the Cup final is on, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just there's people in jerseys everywhere, every bar, you name it. When two years in a row in '06, Carolina won the Stanley Cup at home. And in 07, Anaheim won the Stanley Cup over Ottawa at home. In both those cities, like the fans were great in the building. They were going crazy. They won the Stanley Cup. They were super excited. But then they were gone. And if you – we walked out of of those arenas, you know, an hour after the game, and there's nobody there. And the bars across the street are closed. In Carolina, 11 o'clock at night, they just won the Stanley Cup. We could not find a bar or restaurant open to go to. Like to get a meal and a beer. (laughs) No way. Yeah, because it just, you know, again, they have the fan bases, but everybody, they win the cup, everybody cheers, and then they go home. Uh, There's just not the overall population that goes crazy. Now, you know, if you have American listeners, I'm not saying this for every city. Again, you know, cities like Boston and Chicago and and such go crazy. Of
1: course, But there are just certain pockets
2: there. And again, the fans are great, but there's just not as many of them. It doesn't just capture an entire city like the way it does – Uh, in Canada.
1: I mean, uh, I think it is really the demographic. You just cannot go outside after playing a hockey game in 35 degree weather and head to a beach and expect to be into hockey. I just, it's so hard for me to
2: picture that. It is, it is. So I, I certainly don't blame them for any of it. It's just, and you know, I, when Gary, Gary was Gary Bettman's goal to, to popularize the sport in the South. And I think he's had some success. I mean, the franchises have worked to an extent, but again, it's just never, it's never going to compete with those other sports. I think we could. We could have this discussion in a hundred years, and you know, football and baseball down south will, and college football and such will always be bigger than hockey there.
1: And and I do need to clarify for any American listening, I meant thirty-five degrees Celsius, which which would be about (laughs) I don't know, I don't know, eighty, ninety, a hundred degrees Fahrenheit. (laughs) Ninety-five, probably. Yeah, Yeah, ninety-five in that range. Okay, so let's jump into golf now. Uh, you mentioned that your favorite week of the year is the Masters. You probably are not the first person to say that uh, on this podcast, and I think Bob might have said the same thing. But obviously, he covers golf. Bob Weeks, mm-hmm. as you know. Um, first of all, what is it about Masters Week that's your favorite? Uh, I guess it's just the hype of the course and and the legacy
2: behind it. I, I think it's twofold. It's it's that, but it's also what Masters Week represents in a normal year. Obviously, this year is so goofy. And it's mm-hmm. going to be so weird going down there in November. But Are you, are you covering it that week? Yeah. Back so down? we are going. I probably shouldn't even be saying this right now because it probably hasn't been uh, announced yet because of all the safety precautions. But we're actually going. Uh, barring, you know, some sort of civil unrest after the election or things going south. that We of are course. going to go sort of in our own bubble where we'll get tested for COVID. Um, all of us will get on a bus. Um, we apparently have Whoopi Goldberg's bus. I guess Whoopi Goldberg doesn't fly. So she drives back and forth from California to New York and
1: that's so uh, random. Okay. That's amazing.
2: Yeah. So we're driving to, we'll drive straight to the house. We rent in Georgia, um, on Whoopi Goldberg's bus, and then just go from the, we won't be able to, you know, allowed to go out anywhere. We'll just go from the course to the house, course to the house for the entire week. So it's going to be really different this year. I'm super pumped that we're going. Um, A, because I think it looks good that we're there. It's an important week for our network. But B, because without fans, it won't be as great for everybody at home, and I feel sorry for the fans who can't come. But for us, it's gonna be unbelievable. Because one of the things about the Masters, and Weeksy might have told you this, is that it's hard to cover that event on the course. Because of all the things that make the Masters special, the fact that there's no electronic scoreboards anywhere, there's just the old wooden ones, and there's no cell phones allowed if you got caught with a cell phone on the grounds at augusta national you're you're kicked out and your pass is taken away so it's like walking back into you know the 1800s or something when you walk on that golf course which Mm -hmm. is great as a fan i think it's really cool but it sucks for media (laughs) yeah like i can't i can't i literally can't do it i have to go on and do an hour post show as soon as the round is over And if I'm out walking the golf course, I don't know what's going on. If you're trying to follow Tiger Woods, you're 20 people deep. You might get a glimpse of the top of his cap or his follow through, and that's about it. And so people always say to me, hey, where were you when, you know, Jordan Spieth dunked those two balls on 12 or when Tiger made that putt? And I usually say, well, I was back in the the media center watching it on TV because that's the only way I can cover the tournament. So I'll usually, like, on Masters Sunday or Saturday, I'll walk around in the morning sometimes – but uh, then I have to be back watching it. So this year I might actually be able to walk the course because there's going to be nobody out there, but us. And, and so you'll, you'll be able to walk right down next to tiger or DJ or whoever you want to walk beside, which I think is going to be an amazing experience covering it that way.
1: So it's definitely going to be unique and beneficial, I guess, for all the media members that are going to be out there.
2: Hey, sorry, One of the, to answer the second, I sort of said it was a two-fold answer. The other part mm-hmm. was um, just what, what the typical Masters week represents in April. I think for all of us who are sports fans, it, it, and it, all Canadians in particular, and I don't know if Americans feel the same way, but it's been a long winter in Canada, and Masters week always kind of represents the start of spring and the start of like big things ahead. It's the first major, the sun is shining, it looks great at Augusta, Maybe the snow starting to melt in Canada and, and you're getting ready for golf season and, you know, baseball playoffs are starting and everything else and, and hockey playoffs. And I just think it, it's almost the best week of the sports year because of that. All this cool stuff is happening and summer is ahead in Canada, which is such a big deal for all of us. And so I think those, all those things make Masters Week sort of symbolic of so much more than just the tournament itself.
1: I'll tell you what, I don't know if listeners actually know this, and you definitely don't, but my birthday every single year falls on the same weekend as the Masters. Mm-hmm. So the one of the rare days off that I give myself every single year is literally on my birthday where I sit at home, assuming I'm not there with the player, obviously, and do absolutely nothing but just watch the Masters all day. That's,
2: that's your birthday.
1: That's my, that's my birthday every single year solo on my couch, watching the masters. And honestly, I love it. It's like the best day ever. Cause I get to do yeah. absolutely nothing and just enjoy the golf.
2: Yeah. I, well, I, I would do the exact same thing on my birthday. Cause I just, there's just something about that event, which is just the coolest. And everybody asks me my favorite sort of masters moment. I guess I've done seven of them now. Mm-hmm. You know, the first one is always really special. Uh, the first one I did was 2002 when Tiger was sort of at his prime and uh, he beat Goosen and, and once back-to-backs and just being there for the first time and witnessing everything that everybody talks about, about the golf course was really cool. Um, but 2019, when, when Tiger won again, and just going back to the story, like we, we followed him for about five holes and it was very much up in the air. You remember how tight that tournament was? There was probably 12 guys and some of the world's best players who were all right there. Yeah, I think it was, it was
1: when really- Francesco dunked it on 15 that kind of sure. took himself out of it too
2: but at nine nine was the last hole that we could watch and then i had to go watch the back nine on tv and uh tiger if tiger hit it real deep on nine on that really sloped green and had to make uh, just a ridiculous like it was an almost impossible two putt i think it was about 60 feet down those two tiers and anybody who hasn't been to augusta the undulations are remarkable and that green in particular is crazy, is crazy. sloped
1: back to front <laughs>
2: Put it this way i got to play uh sorry that sounded like a humble brag uh four years ago and, you're
1: entitled uh, to a humble brag dude it's yeah. fine
2: and uh it's actually the the biggest jerk thing i do uh, when i'm playing with guys i've never played with before is you know if you if, if you're just out with a buddy and you join with two other guys or something and you're just having casual conversation i always go to them so what's your favorite course you ever played and guys will be like oh you know i played royal montreal or i played Rings, <laughs> and they'll go what about you and i'll just be Augusta National, no big deal um, so <laughs> <laughs> That's my dick move of the week uh but anyway, so Tiger made this uh sorry I've gotten all my stories, so when I got to play that year uh the they always they, you play Sunday pins, you get to play on the monday mm-hmm. and I, I was playing with uh one of the people I was playing with was a a lady who was like the b b c producer, and she was at the back, kind of where Tiger was. And she she putted it too hard, and it went not only off the green but seventy five yards back into the fairway. That's how sloped the up you know the, the end of the fairway is on nine. Mm-hmm. So she went from a forty foot putt to a seventy five yard chip. Uh, so anyway, Tiger made a two putt there, and I don't know if he was tied for the lead or one back or whatever it was, but just the buzz as he walked from nine green to 10 T was something I will never forget. People were just screaming, you know, middle-aged guys and women and just going like the electricity as he walked through that crowd with people realizing that Tiger was going to the back nine in Augusta with a chance to win again is something, you know one of the most electric environments that uh, I've, I've ever witnessed in, in my broadcasting career.
1: I was going to ask, was that your favorite moment that you've ever covered or one of?
2: Uh, it, it's on the top five list. I got lucky that year was the year the Raptors won. And I was fortunate enough to cover the NBA finals and uh, be there when they won. So that's certainly up there. But my, my stock answer to that question, number one will always be 2010 Olympics and the Crosby goal. Uh, I was always an Olympic geek when I was a kid. And uh, I was fortunate enough to be able to host the Olympics during the day. And then I'd go down and host the hockey games at night from the rink. And so where he actually scored the goal was I was probably 30 feet away because our set was just above the, the U.S. net uh, uh, by the Zamboni entrance. And so uh, yeah, it was just, you know, to be uh, uh, an Olympic geek who loves hockey and loves Canada to have that moment happen right in front of you was was probably will always be number one for me.
1: I actually wrote down a couple of questions that I wanted to ask. And one of them was going to be literally, how was it to cover the Olympics? Cause that that's like, I would imagine as a broadcaster, that's as big as it gets in terms of events that you're covering.
2: Yeah, I'm an old guy, buddy. And so I was 10 years <laughs> old when, uh, when the Olympics were in Montreal. And I think that's when I fell in love with them. I watched every second and. From then on, I, I would literally, as a 14-year-old, 18-year-old, I would just watch from the moment they came on at, you know, 7 o'clock in the morning to 11 o'clock at night, I'd watch every single Olympic thing. And I got to cover, like, Torino in 2006, but it wasn't quite the same. And so to be able to cover an Olympics in your home country that, and for it to go that well for Canada was uh, just a really, really, really cool event.
1: I didn't realize this until actually doing some research that you were in the movie goon at one point <laughs> Were you goon one of the too. Were you, were you one of the announcers on television during that movie when they were uh, showing?
2: I'm actually in the sequel. So, uh, goon I'm in goon Two. uh, mm-hmm. Jay Parishel, another great Montrealer. Um, I got to know him a little bit and it was funny. I ran into him at some award show or something and I, we were having a conversation and I jokingly said, uh, I knew he was doing Goon 2. I said, you should get the panel in Goon 2. And he was like, "Ah." he laughed. And like six months later, he called me. He goes, I wrote the panel into Goon 2. And it didn't end up being the panel. There was some, It was supposed to be Bob McKenzie and I, and politics got involved. And it ended up being, uh, I was the host. And the uh, the, the analyst was uh, TJ Miller, who is the uh, an actor that, you may not recognize the name. He's been in all sorts of things. He's the bartender in Deadpool. He's a funny guy He's in starting Silicon Valley. Uh you'd have to Google Google his face or listeners right now. He's been in all sorts and you'd recognize the face. The guy so, the guy with the fro. Character actor. He's yeah, like white fro, right? Curly, yeah. Curly yeah, 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 yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. So, and he was amazing. And so we all shot it in one day. So basically, Jay just used us to sort of uh pull the narrative forward in the movie. And, uh, I thought it was funny. We filmed it. So in one day we filmed it at TSN and originally they had a fake name for me. My name was, I don't know, like Michael LaCroix or something. And then at the end when they were editing, they're just like, just be James Duffy because you're just playing yourself anyway. And, uh, we did shot all the scenes in about two hours and TJ Miller was, uh, so funny, like his improvised stuff was just hilarious. And I was having trouble keeping a straight face the whole time. But I thought we are going to end up, you know, in one scene in the movie. And we ended up being in about 25 scenes, including the first scene of the movie is us. And so. No way, uh, that's hilarious. Yeah, when it came out, if you have a chance to watch Boon 2, uh, it's there's yeah, there's a lot of us that you'll you'll hear and see in the background. And uh, uh, yeah, that was my my movie debut and probably the last time I'll ever be in a film.
1: Until somebody needs another sports caster from Montreal. I got, I got typecast right away. From, from Canada, yeah. <laughs> um, I want to ask you a couple of Montreal questions. First of all, when was the last time you came back to this wonderful town of mine?
2: Oh, that's a great question. Uh, it's got to be for a hockey game. Yeah, it might be a few years. I'm trying to think if it was a family. Probably two years it's been, which is probably the longest time I had between visits to Montreal. Um, growing up in Ottawa, I was there all the time. I would take a bus down to expo games or Habs games in the, uh, they had this thing called big man shappy tours in Ottawa that you paid, you know, 50 bucks and you got your ticket and the bus trip down to games. I would do that almost every weekend. I loved the expos growing up. Uh, baseball was actually, I talked about football. Baseball was one of my first passions and loved the expos during their heyday. Tim Raines was my all time favorite athlete ever. Um, but I haven't been back in a while just because we haven't traveled as much. I was there for the whole Habs run. wherever uh, the last Habs run was three years, four years ago. I'm terrible with dates. They all blend into one for me. I mean, first of all, let's be realistic. I don't
1: know what kind of yeah, Habs run you're talking 10. about.
2: <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> there hasn't been any Habs
1: run in this town in a while.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe it was, uh, yeah, it was, I was there a lot for a span of when All-Star game was there and everything, but I haven't been because the Habs have, you're right. Kind of sucked the last few years, uh, <laughs> but great things on the horizon. I haven't been there nearly as much, but, uh, I'm coming to see you buddy as soon as, uh, I just have to pr- do a little bribery involved where, you know, I promise my wife, I take her with me and she goes and buys, you know, a handbag or something like this. And I spend all day with you.
1: <laughs> I'll be ready for it, dude. That's why I wanted to talk about your setup that you just got all dialed in with. First of all, how long you been playing golf for? Cause I haven't even asked you any actual golf
2: questions about your own game. Yeah. So are you, are you going to be, uh, charging for this part is now, are we to do a lesson now?
1: We could do a live lesson if you want, but I, <laughs> I'm not going to charge you for it.
2: <laughs> no, You've been so good to me, buddy. Uh, so I, I love golf, uh, as a kid, but was not, my dad was not a golfer. As I said, he was a football guy. We only played one round of golf together in our lives after I was sort of fell in love with it at 14. And, uh, I remember he was terrible, but he was only out there for me. And it's one of my fondest uh, memories really on some crappy municipal course in Tweed, Ontario. But uh, we used to go, my, my mom used to not know what to do with me in the summertime and I had a best buddy named Mark Ward and she would drop us off at the mini golf on Ennis road in uh, Blackburn Hamlet outside of Ottawa and just leave us there for eight hours. So we would play like nine rounds of mini golf against each other.
1: Oh my God. And then,
2: yeah. And there was a little machine at the end where you hit the ball around in a circle and you could get a free game and we got so good at it that we could time it perfectly. And so we would just get, we would pay for one game and then free game after free game, after free game, we might hit one bucket on the range, but we were much more interested in mini golf. Then when we got to about be about 14, um, We didn't, you know, I was sort of lower middle class family and we didn't have a ton of money or anything. And uh, I did have, I scrounged together enough, some golf clubs. And there was a local course called the Pine View Municipal Golf Course. Any of your Ottawa listeners would know it in the East End. And we didn't have enough money to play for greens fees. So I would go, I would get up at four o'clock in the morning and I would walk to my buddy Mark's house and uh, throw rocks at his window to wake him up. And he would come down and we'd get on the OC Transpo bus, uh, take the 10-minute ride to the golf course, and we'd get off and we'd sit on the first tee in the dark, wait for the sunrise. And as soon as the sun came up and it was light enough, we would tee off. And our rationale was the ninth hole was right by the clubhouse. If we got past the ninth hole by about 6.30 before um, anybody came in, then we wouldn't have to pay. So we would just walk off at 18 and go straight back to the bus stop. So it was highly illegal, although we kind of justified it in our heads by saying, well, maybe, maybe you don't have to pay at golf uh, if, if it's not during the normal hours. <laughs> so we rationalized our illegal golfing and uh, paid, played probably 10 rounds a year for a couple of years doing that, never paying for a round of golf. The greenskeeper guys would see us and they probably knew what we were doing, but they let us get away with it. And I was horrible. Uh, never had a lesson, homemade swing, uh, something that curses me to this day that I I never bothered to take lessons back then. I remember we would tee it up in the fairway when we were 14, break every rule possible when it came to golf and golf etiquette. Um, but it was super fun. And that's probably where my love for the sport was. I never played A ton, you know, I because of those restrictions, I only played five or ten rounds a year. And then um, when I moved to B.C. one year, I played a bunch, like 40 or 50 rounds and got decent in a homemade swing kind of way. And then I got married and had three kids in four years. And uh, as any young parent will tell you, it's hard to play a ton of golf in those situations. And so basically all I was playing was tournaments, you know, TSN tournaments. I, so I played my own ball about twice a year and played about six or seven scrambles. And that's the only golf I would play until about four years ago when my kids got old enough and, and I joined my first club and, uh, um, started playing a lot more. And it's really only in the last two years that I would say that I've gotten obsessed with it. My wife would concur that I've gotten completely obsessed, uh, and, you know, started taking lessons and found you and, uh. Started really caring and trying to understand things like hand path and, and everything else that I never really <laughs> quite understood. But as I've told you privately, it's it is. Uh, I love it. I'm obsessed with it. I'll keep working on it till I die. Um, but it's 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 incredibly difficult to erase thirty years of muscle memory, and that's the greatest challenge I find uh, with my golf game. Is you know trying to do ch- understanding what I need to do, but uh, getting out on the course and being unable to change the bad habits that I've had for a long time.
1: Well, that's why we're talking, right? Cause I, I know what those bad habits are and we're going to work slowly towards getting <laughs> rid of them, but obviously, uh, yeah, I mean, I trust me, I, I understand it. Um, especially as someone like you who kind of grew up, not really taking lessons. I mean, even my swing is, if you look at my swing now compared to like 30 years ago it, or 20 years ago or whatever, it's just a refined version of the same move. I mean, at the end of the day, my swing hasn't gotten much better either. I've probably gotten more talented as a golfer, but Mm -hmm. the actual motor pattern itself is very much ingrained of bad habits, just like you who didn't really take lessons growing up, you know? So I, I understand the difficulties of getting rid of kind of patterns that stuck forever, but, um, your swing is better than you give it credit for. I will say for anybody who's listening, his swing is, is pretty good. I've seen way worse than, than James.
2: Well, it's, it's, uh, the other thing is I've told you I had I had shoulder surgery from foot my football injuries uh, in my 20s and I'm a little bit limited. That sounds like a, a cop excuse. It's not really. But I think that what happened uh, is that's when I got a little I get a little short and I definitely get inside and I have trouble getting up and back. And, uh, you know, I, I've worked uh, a shout out to uh, Ryan Holly, who's the guy who worked with me the last couple of years. Ryan's moving out to B.C. But he, he helped me a lot. Uh, he was the first guy who really helped me understand a lot of things of, you know, of club path and, uh, and angles and all those things, it, Which it was at least it's a lot easier when you do understand as you've helped me do, you know, what is happening because I had zero understanding of what was, what, what went into the golf swing before, you know, why you're really sliced or why you hooked or whatever that may be. And I, I certainly understand it a lot better now. doesn't mean I can do it necessarily better, but, uh, I'd certainly understand it better.
1: Uh, and I would say that your hook is way more prevalent than any slice that I'm seeing in your golf swing. So I don't
2: really slice all, you know, intentionally now, sometimes, you know, he, he, anybody who hits the hook will hit the weak fade one time, sometimes as well. Right.
1: Yeah. A hundred percent.
2: The weak push, excuse me. So I will definitely do that, but it's, uh, certainly your, your help this year, I got as low, this is the first year I was like a single handicap for like a month or something like that. I was, I think I've hovered sort of around a 12 factor, 13 sort of around a 14 handicap. And uh, this year I've been steady down, you know, around 10. Um, it's actually gone up a little bit the last couple of weeks only cause I had a, a run of good scores that have now been slowly erased from my, uh, but I've been way more consistent this year. I used to be a guy who could shoot 78 and then the next day would shoot 96. And that would pattern a lot. 81, 93, 82, 94. And this year uh, I was just looking at my scores the other day and it's a lot more 83, 85, 84, 82, 80, 84. Maybe not as many great low scores, but uh, a a lot more consistency, which makes the game fun.
1: For sure. Um, My producer slash brother wanted wanted me to ask you what your favorite restaurant is in Montreal, if you have one.
2: Uh, it won't be probably the typical answer. This is going to be a really lovey-dovey answer, but, uh, I don't even know if it's still there, but there was a Japanese restaurant called Katsura, which was, uh, when I started dating, my wife was one of the first big, uh, weekend getaways. We went to Montreal and, uh, she had been to this restaurant called Katsura. And, uh, uh, so that's like my fondest memory. We, we went there like two or three times in our early dating days before we got married but I'm really bad with remembering, um, names of restaurants. I've been to some really good ones there. I'm terrible at remembering names. So it's all uh, good. Apologies.
1: It's okay. My brother's already doing the research right now on whether it exists or not. It probably
2: doesn't <laughs> exist anymore. I'm guessing we're talking about, I've been with my wife 25 years. So that was a long, yeah, long, long,
1: time ago. long time ago. Um, two last questions for you. Number one, um, what would be your fantasy foursome? This is something that I ask people all the time. Or not fantasy foursome. Sorry, I'm wording this incorrectly. What would be your dream foursome of people you would love to play golf with?
2: Well, I think that it would be. It wouldn't be any of the golfers that are uh, out there right now. I think the standard answer for this question is, you know, Tiger Woods and uh, Justin Thomas, and it, it's not that. You know, I've had the privilege of, you know, interviewing these guys and such, and uh, that doesn't do it for me. To me, it would be more, uh, if living or dead was involved, I'd love to have another round with my dad just because I only had that one, and you know, whenever we lose a parent that becomes something. I never met my grandfathers who were both gone before I was alive. Um, and my, particularly my, my one grandfather on my mom's side was apparently quite a, a character. He had a radio show in Ottawa and I think, you know, you probably, that's where I kind of got my, uh, the way I am and probably media bug probably came unknowingly through him. So I would have, uh, I, I'd probably put my two grandfathers and my dad in there. And if I had to cut out one grandfather story, grandpops, then I bring my son along with me who, uh, that's the other part of what i'm really enjoying right now my son was uh he's 20 now i really wanted to get him into golf and he would you know play a couple of rounds a year but not really be into it growing up and i wanted to redo the mistakes you know that i had made and give him lessons and stuff he took a couple lessons he didn't really like it but over the last two years he fell in with a group of buddies at university that loved the game and he's fallen as head over heels for the game as i have and is now kicks my ass because he's like most kids really good as a, <laughs> a much better swing than me is, you know, his hips are so wide open at impact. I just get drool with envy at it. Um, and has gone from, you know, in a year basically shooting a hundred to shooting in the seventies every second round. So, uh, I, that would be it probably dad, granddad, and, and, and son, which is, I know is kind of a hokey answer, but, um, that would be my dream for some.
1: First of all, I like that answer a lot um, because every single person we ask who comes on says Tiger Woods immediately. So at least it's a different answer, which is good. And also uh, to be fair, I don't know if I would have a golfer in my dream foursome either. I think that when you work in golf and you're around, the golf people all the time, whether that's media professionals or whatever, it's almost like it, uh, it. no longer has that effect on you of wanting to play with these players as much. So I, I think that all three of the players I would choose to play with would be outside of the golf world. So I, I totally get where you're coming from. I'd probably you um, in there
2: too. You'd be my fifth, just because then I'd just be <laughs> begging you for tips the entire round. But it, it's true, and this, this I think can be said for all athletes. Like they're good guys. Uh, I'll, I'll be in the sports that i've covered uh hockey guys are fantastic and golfers are a lot better than i thought they would be i kind of thought the golfers would be kind of the rich snooty when i started covering the sport but for the most part golfers are pretty really nice guys that i've met um, but they're not that interesting and it's like hockey players are not that interesting and so uh there's just many more people in the world that i would love to talk to than than them and no offense to any of them but they're just Uh, tiger, I think you would all be, you know, it would be fun to watch him play and, you know, maybe give you a couple of tips, but he probably wouldn't say a lot in his four or five hours with you. And I guess I've also been jaded by watching pro-ams and playing in a couple of pro-ams. And I know that golfers don't love those things. And so I'd always feel like if this was a, you know, this dream foursome was a reality, the tiger would probably be miserable his entire four hours with me. And, uh, <laughs> and I, wouldn't blame, I wouldn't blame him for that. So I think the whole time I'd just be like, hey, sorry, you have to go through this, buddy. I'm sorry you have to go through this.
1: I will say from personal experience that professional golfers definitely are not a fan of Pro-Am's. I don't know what it is about playing with casual golfers that maybe they just feel like there's an obligation to it that makes them annoyed about it. but. For whatever reason, they're just not a huge fan of, of playing those events. I totally understand why they're a necessity for the sport, but... Um, well,
2: think about it, though. Like, there's no other sport like that. Imagine if LeBron had to play a three-on-three game with four random guys <laughs> be- before every NBA game. Or, or if uh, Sidney Crosby had to go <laughs> do a little shootout with a couple of, you know, beer league goalies before on the Monday of every NHL week. It's kind of a weird thing that exists that again is a necessity of the game and like i said i don't blame uh, it's not look it's not a lot to ask of these guys i suppose when they're they're living the lives they are but i can understand like four or five hours is a long time to be out there with guys and if they're horrible golfers or whatever and you're just trying to get ready for a tournament i golfed with uh, in the canadian open pro-am a few years ago with Ollie Snyder snyderjans
1: mm-hmm. and
2: uh the two guys with me were connor brown who played for the leafs at that time and cal clutterbuck who played for the Islanders who were both scratch golfers. Ollie liked hockey. I was not going to bug him because I understood. You know, so it
1: was, it was a great experience is what you're saying. basically. He
2: said to us, he said, this is the, I'm, this is the happiest I've ever been to play a Pro-Am. Because he, <laughs> you know, he was with two other professional athletes and a sportscaster who didn't bug him. And he actually could ask me questions about a couple of the sports that he loved. And you could tell this was about as good a break as he could have gotten in a Pro-Am group.
1: That's too funny. Okay. So moving away from that, the last question I wanted to ask was just, if you had any funny stories just from your time recording live with TSN, if anything has ever happened, uh, some sort of like on camera blunder or someone made a mistake and maybe said information that they shouldn't have leaked too early. Has that ever happened?
2: Oh, I mean, I got how long, how much time do you got? Do you, uh, how can I be a little uh, like uh, non PG? Like, I'm, I won't swear, but. Uh, oh,
1: dude, you could. This is a casual pot here, man. You can okay. say whatever the F you want.
2: Okay, so some of the funniest things that happen are, uh, are the bloopers. It's just, you say, especially when you're tired, we don't use a teleprompter. Uh, you know, it's not like newscasts. Sports Center, if you're hosting Sports Center, they have a teleprompter. But when I'm hosting hockey or golf or whatever, there's no teleprompter. We're just, you just go with your own brain, which is. To me a lot more challenging and fun but it also opens the door to saying stupider things at times um, and I, when we used to do the playoffs nonstop, you would get so tired by about the second round and i can remember one particular day it was an afternoon game on a saturday and we'd worked a doublehead of the night before and bob mckenzie and darren pang were on this thing with me and i was doing a bunch of highlights and for highlights they give you a script Uh, But it's a very loose script, right? They'll just tell you who scored the goal and what period it was, basically, and you ad lib the rest. And I was tired and going through these highlights, and there was a highlight, I believe it was Brooks-like, who scored a goal for the Capitals against the Rangers, where he kind of went around the net and uh, pushed a guy off and scored on a wraparound. And I had the unfortunate choice of words to say, all right, into the second period, uh, Capitals even things up. Here's Brooks-like, look at him, beating a man off with one arm. (laughs) and i said it and right away i kind of stopped and i said and i looked over at bob and darren and they were just howling laughing and then i started laughing and for the next three minutes i just the highlights kept running and we just couldn't talk because it was such an infantile thing to say but even worse than that uh gino retta a longtime tsn guy he was hosting the world juniors before i did i think it was 2003 in halifax and uh coming out of commercial break you sometimes uh say these things we call like hero shots where they, you know, they show a quick replay. Hey, welcome back to the world juniors on TSN or whatever. So they come back to, uh, out of commercial break and the shot is a guy, Brendan bell skating into the glass basically. And the camera's right, right at the glass. So he comes right into the, right into the glass and Gino goes, Oh, welcome back to the world juniors on TSN. There's Brendan bell coming in your face all night long. No way. (laughs) And and Bob was sitting next to him and Bob's like, what? What did you just (laughs) say? There's Brendan Bell coming in your face all night long. That's an unpleasant thing to happen. The other quick one I'll tell you, when I started doing CFL, so literally my first week on TSN, Chris Schultz, who was a longtime broadcaster at TSN, he played offensive lineman for the Cowboys and the Argos. So he was really new. And Chris was a great guy, but you know, like a lot of football players that had taken his headshots. And uh, um, so Chris did not want to wear the IFB, which is the one thing in television. We don't have a lot of skills in our job, but maybe one of the skills we have is that being able to talk while the producer is talking to you. So sometimes they'll be like, hey, James, you got to keep talking for 30 seconds here. And so you're hearing him and you have to keep talking and being coherent. Well, Schulte wanted no part of that. He said he already had voices in his head. <laughs> um, but halfway through the first game, they said, Schultz, you have to put this earpiece in because if you're ever going to get good at this job, you know, we have to be able to talk to you. So reluctantly, he put it in and we were doing our halftime sh- halftime show. And in those days, we would we would talk right up until the kickoff. So when it was kickoff, we would throw it back and they would kick off the second half so that the producer had been avoiding talking to Schultz. But in this moment, Schultz was talking too long and we were going to miss the kickoff so Schultze's going on and on and uh the producer yells in his ear schultz shut up give it back to james we're gonna miss the kickoff so this is what came out on the air okay i'll be schultzy and uh so Schultze's like all right so if the argos are gonna get back in this game in the second half shut up schultz give it back to james we're gonna miss the kickoff he just <laughs> said he said exactly what the <laughs> producer said into his ear like i think he thought it was his own brain talking <laughs> So you imagine you're sitting home watching the CFL and this guy's yelling, Schultz, shut up, give it back to James. So uh, oh, that, that was man, That's first, like
1: straight out of a movie.
2: Yeah, that was my first, uh, first week at TSN. So. Uh, and it's funny, you know, you end up remembering bloopers and moments like that more than the good stuff you do. You never remember, hey, that was a really good panel we did. You just end up remembering all the screw-ups. But uh, there's many more than that, but those are a handful for you.
1: That's amazing. That's actually amazing. Man, yeah, that's yeah.
2: that. Well, we uh, ourselves, what more can you do? Right?
1: Oh, dude, I'm all for it. I mean, uh, trust me, I've had my fair share of, of blunders. Thankfully they're always behind closed doors. So no one really ever sees them when they're happening.
2: Well, but- that is the one thing about our job is that, uh, um, you know, you can have a bad day at work. Most people, and not many people would know maybe, but if we do have a bad day at work, you, uh, a lot of people know about it. I'll, <laughs> I'll leave you with one golf one. I just remembered covering my first masters again, ad-libbing something. And I think I was talking about Amen Corner. And I said, I made the mistake of saying, uh, 12, 13, 14, those are the glory holes at Augusta National. (laughs) And I I was so naive, I didn't really know that there was another connotation to glory holes. And uh, someone had to alert me on Twitter that uh, glory holes means uh, a completely different thing in some aspects of the world and so (laughs) i made a note to myself never to use glory holes again
1: (laughs) my god it's so funny because it's one of those things that like you don't think of right i never even thought of it
2: and then you know you go to twitter and it's like (laughs) eight thousand mentions duffy just said glory holes
1: fuck that's so funny (laughs) well dude uh man i i I appreciate so much you coming on i mean i i hope you uh, first of all, realize that you are a legend in, in Canadian sports. Um, I know that it's always hard to, to, to receive compliments. I don't know how well you take them or not, but you really are one of the, the best of the best. And I think everybody in Canada obviously recognize you for, for the hard work you've done with hockey, but with just Canadian sports in general, I mean, you are the TSN guy that everybody grew up watching. So, um, I really appreciate everything that you, that you've done for, for us. And just as a whole coming on and, and giving me an hour of your time.
2: Oh, buddy. Anytime. I, uh, I, am the same way for you. Like you guys, like you are the superstars in my life, right? Because I'm so obsessed with golf and I live and die with your Instagram and everything. So, uh, (laughs) I feel the same way and you've been so kind and good to me. And, uh, I know that probably a lot of the people that listen to you have taken lessons from you or might be thinking about it. Uh, I couldn't recommend you higher enough if I can leave with one plug cause it, I wouldn't be a broadcaster if I didn't do a shameless plug.
1: Do it do dude, have, go for it.
2: I do have a new podcast out um, and a new book out called beauties. Uh, hockey's greatest untold stories, which is, um, basically I just asked 55 guys, the Crosby's, the McDavid's, the Bobby Orr's, the Gretzky's plus some of the just great storytellers in the game. Um, one of the buddies of yours, Carl Alsner, is, uh, actually in the book. Cause he's a longtime friend of mine. Carl, Carl is uh, the best. Yeah. So I just said, tell me your favorite hockey story because you know, like the questions you asked me here when I run into people or, uh, they're always like, you know, what's the stuff, you know, what's the favorite story you have about John Tortorella or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what people always want to know. So I asked all the players, I said, tell me your favorite story that you will tell guys over beers or whatever that you can repeat and some that you can't repeat and so I put together a book of, of all of those. And, and then we we're doing a podcast sort of based on the book where we're not going to tell all the stories in the book because we want people to buy the book, but, uh, uh, some of them. And, uh, the first episode of that is out right now. And, uh, you can buy the book as of next Tuesday and sorry to use your podcast for a plug, but thank you.
1: Not nah, dude, that's amazing. I love it. Also, you kind of are leading me to one last question. Who is the person that people ask you about the most that they want to know information of when they come across you?
2: that's funny uh i mean probably bob mckenzie would be one just because he's so respected <laughs> yes, what's he really is. like another, another, le- another legend i gotta send you he's another guy who's fallen in love with the game uh over the last uh just this summer really uh and send him fix- my send him my way dude i'll fix him up yeah he, uh, he's got a lot of work to do but he's getting there like he's made a, a lot he was terrible and now he's uh he's made a lot of improvements in uh just this summer um but I would, you know, I probably mentioned torts there for a reason because he was on our panel for a year and because he's so explosive in his news conferences, uh, <laughs> nobody goes nuts more than he does. Yeah. But he's, you know, he's not like that. He's like, was the shy, quietest guy when he was with us on the panel. It was really strange. Um, and so I, I think that's probably the guy because people saw me next to him for the longest time that people say, what was that guy really like, um, that I get, but, uh, a lot of questions on him and Jeff O'Neill is a popular guy now, the O-Dog, uh, maybe not as much in Montreal, but he does all the leaf stuff in Toronto. So a lot of people ask me about him. But uh, uh, yeah, and that's, you know, that's kind of why I wrote the book is that's kind of been the funnest part of my job, buddy, is for 20 years sitting next to all these ex-coaches and players who are so knowledgeable and have great stories. And kind of the fun part is you you see us on TV during the intermissions, but Uh, The funnest part is just sitting there watching the game with them, right? It's just like watching Mm -hmm. the game with a bunch of buddies, except the buddies have won Stanley Cups or (laughs) uh, coached in the league or whatever that may be. So I've been so fortunate to be able to do those things.
1: Just a little bit different than watching it with your beer league buddies at home.
2: Yeah, a little bit different, but the same concept really
1: yeah 100 percent. well dude i love it man thank you the, the, and no worries about the plug man we're gonna push it as much as we can uh, even in the intro so
2: all right was, buddy i'll uh i'll tell you when i get my sky tracker hooked up in the basement and uh, uh we'll get working this winter sweet dude all the best all right bud take care take care man
0: that was great and thanks again to james for giving us uh, an hour of his time and jumping onto our podcast Obviously, we love it when we have, uh, you know, such iconic people, especially in the sporting industry, jump on and, and spend some of their time and talk with us about golf and about sports. As usual, I'd just like to remind everyone to leave us a review. Those reviews definitely help us in the ranking on podcasts, as well as leaving us a comment or following us on social media. That's Nack Giovanni Golf on Instagram. That's Schkeen Golf on Instagram and Schkeen Golf on Twitter. And as usual, I hope you guys all have a wonderful weekend. Thanks again to our sponsors of the show: Callaway Golf, Trackman Golf, and Acro Golf shafts. And don't forget, if you want to hit the ball 20 yards farther with the SuperSpeed Golf Training System, that can become a reality for you. Join over 700 tour pros by getting your set at superspeedgolf.com. Make sure to use the code Keen. That's S H K E E N to receive 10% off your order.